Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature John Stott. Whether in the West or in the Third World, a hallmark of Stott's ministry has been expository preaching that addresses not only the hearts, but also the minds of contemporary men and women. The evangelical world lost one of its greatest spokesmen, and I have lost one of my closest friends and advisors, said Billy Graham. Today, John Stott presents a sermon on the imitation of Christ. Already our whole service this morning has prepared us for the beginning of a Lenten series of sermons entitled The Imitation of Christ. The title, of course, is borrowed from that spiritual classic which all of us know, many of us will have read, by Thomas Akempis, The Imitation of Christ. You may know that this was a product of a particular pietistic movement in the 14th and 15th centuries on the continent associated with a group of Christians called the Brethren of the Common Life. They formed communities, what today we might call communes, for the deepening of spiritual devotion. They gave themselves to meditation, to prayer, to self-discipline, and they were also active in manual labor and in good works of charity in the community. Evangelical Christians, for many centuries, have had an ambivalent attitude to Thomas Akempis' book, The Imitation of Christ. On the one hand, you've only got to read it to see that it breathes a spirit of great love and devotion to God and to his Son, Jesus Christ. But on the other, as you meditate in the book, we miss some of the authentic notes of the gospel. There is more emphasis in the book on Jesus the model than there is on Jesus the Savior. There is more emphasis, therefore, on the exemplary life that he lived than on the atoning death that he died. And the way of holiness that Thomas Akempis expounds depends rather on struggle and on self-denial and on sacrifice than it does on the new birth, on union with Jesus Christ, and on the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So one has to say that as you read the book, there is much in it that moves the heart and enlightens the mind, and yet there is something that leaves one dissatisfied. Nevertheless, I would like to say that it's a great pity if any of us, for that reason, have shied away from the topic, the imitation of Christ, because the New Testament contains a great deal on this particular theme. Follow me, Jesus said. And that includes at least the following of his example. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ, said the Apostle Paul, describing himself as an imitator of Christ. 
And God's eternal purpose, as we've been seeing in the service earlier today, is to conform us to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. One day, my friends, we're going to be like Jesus. Christ-likeness should be the goal of every Christian. And meanwhile, again, as we've been reminded, the Holy Spirit is transforming us from one degree of glory to another into the image of Christ. So our themes are an exciting one. It's one that should concern all of us, the imitation of Christ. How can you and I become more like Jesus Christ? And what does that mean in the practical, concrete realities of everyday living? So we're going to consider some of the ways in which the example of Jesus is set before us in the New Testament, for he is the man Christ Jesus, And as we look at him, we see not only what God is like, we see also what man and woman ought to be like. We see in the man Christ Jesus what it means to be a human being. And that's what I want to be. That's what you want to be. It's not an exaggeration to say that to be Christian and to be human are interchangeable terms. Well, the first aspect of the imitation of Christ that we're going to look at today, I've entitled, No Compromise with the Devil. I'd like to ask you to turn to a text, although we shall not spend uh, too long on it. It comes in the first letter of John at the end of the Bible, chapter 3 and verse 2 and 3. You'll find the three letters of John just before the revelation at the end. Chapter 3 of the first letter, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be. We are his children. What we shall be is not yet clear. But we do know this, although much is obscure about our eternal destiny, we do know this, that when Jesus appears... We shall be like him, but we shall see him as he is. Total Christ-likeness is our destiny. And verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in Christ, who has this confidence that Christ is coming again, that we're going to see him when he comes, and we're going to be like him when we see him, everyone who has this confidence in Jesus Christ purifies himself as Jesus is pure. In other words, when we realize that our final destiny is Christ-likeness, this is a tremendous stimulus towards Christ-likeness now on earth. We want to be pure as he is pure. So the first aspect of Christ-likeness we're going to think about today is purity, righteousness, holiness, whatever you like to call it. We are to be pure as he is pure. Now, as an illustration of the purity of Jesus, we're going to go back to the beginning of his public ministry and we're going to take a fresh look at his temptations in the wilderness of Judea. So I'd like to ask you to turn from that text to the passage we're really going to look at at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, the second lesson for the service today, and chapter 4. And I trust that we can learn from his example in the wilderness of Judea how to confront the devil, 
how to gain the victory over the devil, how to be pure as he is pure, and how not to compromise with the devil. And I think we can learn these things as we analyze together the temptations of the Lord portrayed in Matthew 4. Now the first thing that shines out of this whole story is Jesus' love for God. His total devotion to God his Father. His total God-centeredness. And we cannot understand how he was able to resist the devil until and unless we see it against the background of his total devotion to God. For these two things inevitably belong together. Now I want to invite you to think about this with me and in order to grasp it, we need to be clear in our minds that the temptations of Jesus were real and fierce. This encounter with the devil in the wilderness of Judea was no mock battle. It was no pretense encounter. It was a real and a grueling experience for the Lord Jesus. But in becoming man, Jesus, among other things, had laid aside his immunity to temptation. God, we're told, cannot be tempted but Jesus was tempted. He made himself vulnerable to the approaches of the devil. Of course he did not sin, don't misunderstand me. But he laid aside his immunity to temptation. The temptations were real. His vulnerability to the devil is very evident in this story. And let us consider how grueling the temptation was. Jesus seems to have gone straight from the waters of Jordan to the wilderness of Judea, straight from the baptism to the temptation, straight from an experience of the Holy Spirit coming upon him like a dove to the most vicious counterattack of the enemy. And as he came into the wilderness of Judea, God the Father's words, baptismal words, were still without doubt ringing in his ears. The words he'd heard when he was baptized this is my son, in whom I am well pleased. Now those are words of enormous significance because by them God deliberately united two Old Testament strands of prophetic expectation regarding the Messiah and he applied them both to Jesus. The first in Psalm 2, this is my son or thou art my son, indicates that as God's Son, he will reign over the nations in glory. The second, in whom I am well pleased, is taken from Isaiah 42 and depicts the Messiah not as God's Son, but as God's servant. The servant of whom we read in these passages in Isaiah, who would suffer and die for the people. So the voice of God at the baptism proclaimed the double destiny of Jesus. First that he would reign as God's son, but before that, that he would suffer and die as God's servant. Indeed, in bringing these two together in the baptismal voice, it was made 
plain that Jesus would only enter into his glory through suffering. But before the echo of the Father's voice had died down in the ears and in the mind of Jesus, the devil challenged it. This is my son, the voice of God had said at the baptism. If you are the son of God, leered the devil. Throwing doubt upon the very thing which God had declared him to be at his baptism. In you I am well pleased, said God, indicated that as my servant your role is to suffer and to die. But surely the devil said that isn't necessary. All the world can be yours if instead of suffering in obedience to the will of God, you bow down and obey me instead. Do you see then how the temptation of Jesus struck at the very roots of his personhood, struck at the very roots of his self-awareness, as had been given him at the baptism. The devil sought to rupture the union that God had made between his person and his mission, between his sufferings and his glory, and the devil tried to precipitate Jesus into a, an identity crisis about who he was and what he'd come into the world to do. And the devil offered to Jesus a shortcut by compromise. He offered him glory without suffering. He offered him world conquest without pain. And behind that fearful temptation, so radical that it struck at the very roots of who he was and what he'd come into the world to do, Jesus detects, detected something even worse than that. For what is plain as you meditate on the temptations of Jesus is that the temptation to doubt himself, to doubt who he was and what he'd come to do, to doubt his person and to doubt his mission, behind the temptation to doubt himself was a temptation to doubt God and to disagree with God as well. Now this is clear from each of the temptations when you look at them in the light of how Christ replied to them. Because how Jesus replied to the temptation, of course, indicates how he understood what the temptation was. Now, when he was tempted to turn stone into bread, Jesus said, <clears throat> but it's written in Scripture that man doesn't live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And in the context in Deuteronomy from which that word is taken, it means by obedience to every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Man lives not just by bread, by food, he lives by obedience to the word of God. So in that temptation, Jesus detected <clears throat> a temptation to disobey God. Then the temptation to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple was a temptation to tempt God. Because Jesus replied, but it's written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You shall not force his hand. You shall not put him to the test. 
I'm going to trust God. I'm not going to force him to display his power on my behalf. I trust him already. And then thirdly, the temptation to fall down and worship the devil is, of course, a, a temptation to disown God altogether. And Jesus replied, but it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God, not disown him. So you see, Jesus saw these temptations as temptations relating to his attitude to God. They were temptations to disobey God, to tempt God, to, to disown God, to doubt God. And what shines out for me from this whole narrative is the fundamental God-centeredness of Jesus. The clarity with which he saw the issues. That to love God, he must resist the devil. And in a sense, one may say, however grueling the temptation was, it wasn't really difficult for him to say, be gone, Satan. Because with this limpid clarity, he saw within each temptation an insinuation that he must doubt God, disobey God, disown God. But Jesus was so focused upon God that it was inconceivable that he should do so. Now, when you and I put ourselves in the position of Jesus, we who are victims of the relativity of modern culture, I think you'd agree with me, we would have reacted in that wilderness of Judea quite differently, and indeed we do react quite differently today. We don't see things in black and white like that. We don't see things in God and devil terms like that. In other words, we don't have the clarity of moral judgment that is so evident in the life of Jesus. What we do is to see everything in infinite gradations of compromise. Why we say the devil's got a point, you know. I mean, there is something in what he is saying, isn't there? It's really rather clever what he's saying. I mean... It's partly true and partly false, and immediately we begin to compromise. We say, but there is a prudence in his offer. There is a worldly wisdom in his offer. There is a business-like practical attractiveness about his proposition. Why, he's offering the whole world. Oh, of course, it's on condition that we fall down and worship him, but it would be rather nice to have the whole world. He's attractive. And so we begin to compromise. No compromise with the devil. That's the first thing I see, this love for God, this total devotion to God, to his will and to his purpose that was at the root of Jesus' refusal to compromise with the devil. Now the second thing, we turn from his love for God to his submission to Scripture. Because what we need to ask ourselves now is, it's, it's all very well to say Jesus loved God, but how did he know the implications of his love for God in the concrete realities of his temptation? Love can be a deliciously vague feeling. So how did his love for God lay upon him such precise ethical obligations that he saw the choice before him and made the right decisions? 
And the answer to that is because his mind was soaked in scripture and because his will was submissive to the scripture in which his mind was soaked. So he could say in verse 10, Begone, Satan, because it stands written, you shall worship the Lord your God. You see, what stood written in scripture was what showed him how his love for God should be expressed. He believed that the living God, his heavenly Father, from whom his being was derived, had spoken, had revealed his will in speech. And Jesus believed that this divine speech had been preserved and recorded in Scripture. And Jesus believed that what Scripture said, God said. Jesus drew no distinction whatever between the will of his Father in heaven and the written word of Scripture. He identified the two. What Scripture said, God said. What God said, Scripture said. It was in Scripture that he discovered the will of God and found the word of God. And he drew no distinction between the two. To obey this word was to obey the Father who had spoken the word. And it was inconceivable to Jesus that he should love God and disregard Scripture. Now that personal submission of Christ to Scripture, the personal submission of the living Word of God to the written Word of God, is immensely impressive. The incarnate Son of God voluntarily adopted a position of subordination to Scripture. Now this, brethren, is the first and fundamental reason why Christian people today should be submissive to Scripture as well. The cavalier attitude to the Bible, adopted by many, even by leaders in the visible church today, I venture to say is incompatible with true Christian discipleship because it is to disagree with Jesus. How dare we have a lower view of Scripture than that of the incarnate Son of God. A disciple is not above his teacher. A servant is not above his Lord. And it is from Jesus that we derive our view of Scripture and our attitude to Scripture. So it was in Scripture that Jesus saw the true position that a man should adopt before his God. Jesus said, quoting Scripture, man shall not live by bread only, but by obedience to every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, in order to be a man, a woman, I must obey God. Or again he said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, because the proper attitude of a man towards God is one of trust, not test before God. Or again he said, but you shall worship the Lord your God, that's what Scripture says. And therefore man must worship God, he must obey God, he must trust God, he must worship God. Now you see, Jesus didn't just know these texts by heart, he did know them by heart. But he didn't just hurl texts in a meaningless kind of way at the devil. Jesus had meditated upon these texts in Deuteronomy, he had absorbed their significance into his mind and heart, 
And Jesus had grasped it according to Scripture. Man finds himself only when he is rightly related to God. That it is basic to our humanness that we love God, trust God, obey God, worship God, and are God-centered. And any human being who is not God-centered is not a human being. Our very humanness is found in our godliness. And godliness and humanness are identical terms. So you see the temptations of the devil that undermined or attempted to undermine this basic relationship of the man Christ Jesus to the living God. He instantly recognized as devilish and resisted. So we've seen his love for God and his submission to scripture. And the third thing is his resistance of the devil. Because it is out of his love for God and out of his submission to scripture that his resistance to the devil was born. Big gone Satan, he said. Get out. Leave me alone. Because it stands written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. It's, it's beautiful, isn't it? It's wonderful. So deeply had Jesus absorbed the God-centeredness of Scripture that he detected immediately the wickedness of the insinuations of the devil. There was no discussion. There was no argument. There was no diplomatic negotiation. There was only a vehement rebuke, an indignant dismissal, there was no compromise with the devil. Now, I believe that this is one of the most practical lessons that God means us to learn from this whole narrative. Because the devil's tactic, ever since the Garden of Eden, has been to try to establish a bridgehead in our mind and to invite us to come to the negotiating table. The tactic of the devil has been to get us to open up debate with him and to persuade us to dilly-dally with temptation until we begin to appreciate the reasonableness and to savor the attractiveness of what he is offering us. And then his toehold becomes a foothold, and his foothold becomes a stronghold, and his stronghold becomes a stranglehold, and we fall ignominiously to his temptations. May I give you one or two practical examples? We begin to paddle in the warm shallows of self-pity, and soon we are wallowing in the depths. We begin by nursing just a little tiny resentment against somebody, and soon it has become a deep-seated animosity. Or our undisciplined eyes lead to lustful looks. And lustful looks lead to an inflamed imagination until our inflamed imagination is overwhelmed by the tidal waves of passion. Or again, we refuse to accept somebody's apology and forgive them. Why should we? 
until in weeks and months' time we've turned sour and our whole heart is full of bitterness. For one thing leads to another and another and another by compromise. And it is in, in contrast with all that, you see, that we see the wonder of Jesus, instant rebuke of the devil. He was prompt and he was ruthless in the very first approaches of temptation. Brethren, I believe from Scripture and from my own experience, not only in victories but also in failures, I know that this is a major secret of, of Christian victory. It is the little compromises which lead to the big falls. Now let me conclude with just another word or two in just another minute or two. First, a word of comfort. Is there somebody in church today grievously assaulted by the devil? You feel your weakness, as indeed I do. We say in the words of the prayer book, by reason of the frailty of our nature, we cannot always stand upright. And we know our great weakness. Listen, my brother or sister, Jesus Christ understands. His temptations were real. He is able, as the author to the Hebrews says, he's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, for he was tempted just as we are, and yet without sinning. No temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man. Indeed, the Lord Jesus himself has trod this path before you. Brother, sister, lift up your heart. Even in the midst of defeat, there is a way of escape. There is a way of victory. Jesus resisted the devil. And he tells us to resist the devil in his name. And he promises if we do, he will flee from us. A word of comfort. But then second, a word of challenge. How did Jesus resist? Because we say, it's all very well telling me to resist the devil. My resistance is so weak, that's just my problem. How can I resist? Let me draw a quick analogy between physical and moral resistance. If you had flu in the last few weeks, what is the secret of resistance? It isn't really to take patent medicines when the germ is about. It's to build up your resistance the rest of the time. By a disciplined life, by a balanced diet, by being strong physically. And then you see when the germs attack, your resistance is there. The real secret of resisting the devil is not learning some, tem some, some technique in the moment of temptation. It's building up your resistance the rest of the time. The real secret of Jesus resisting the devil was not even the texts that he threw at the devil in the moment of temptation. It was his whole life of devotion to God. Behind his encounter with the devil, there lay hidden depths of godliness. He watched and prayed that he might not fall to temptation. He kept himself rightly orientated to God. He waited upon the Lord. He renewed his strength so that when the temptation came, he was ready, he was resistant. Out of these depths of godliness, 
That's the secret for us. No shortcut, you see, but just spending time every day in the conscious presence of God, getting ourselves properly orientated to him, learning from his word, listening to his voice, abiding in the warm glow of communion with him, waiting upon him that we may renew our strength until our love for him is kindled and until our hatred of evil is strengthened. And then when the moment of temptation comes, we too shall imitate Christ. No compromise with the devil. We shall say, be gone, Satan. Because it stands written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Let's remain seated and be quiet for a moment. Let's thank Jesus for his uncompromising resistance of the devil. And let us pray that he will work the same in us. O oh Lord Jesus, forgive us for the times we compromise with the devil. <clears throat> Thank you for your own uncompromising moral attitude, your hatred of evil. Work it in us, we pray, even in the midst of our relativistic culture. Strengthen us by the Holy Spirit. Help us to orientate ourselves aright every day that we increasingly may be pure as you are pure. We ask it for the glory of your great name. Amen. You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.